0: The startups that have been in the tech village and have graduated from the tech village have raised $2 billion of venture capital in the past nine years, and they've created over 7,000 direct jobs and then a much larger number of indirect jobs.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Before we dive in today, a few quick business updates. First, check out Thunder.VC, a new platform that matches founders and investors in a respectful way. It's a passion project of mine, and it's got to be the easiest way to match with investors if you're a company and vice versa. You can reserve your handle on Thunder.VC. Also, our incubator interplay is accepting applications. Our program is super active at this point, it's not an accelerator. If an accelerator is a classroom format, our program is a lot more like private tutoring. You can learn more and apply at interplay.vc. On today's episode, I catch up with my old friend, David Cummings. David and I met during our days back at Duke in undergrad when there were only a a handful of entrepreneurs on campus. All of my endeavors fizzled out, but David was massively successful. Not only did he end up selling out for $95 million to Salesforce, one of the companies he started while we were at college, Hannon Hill, is still active and continues to scale today. David's current focus and passion is on the Atlanta Tech Village. It's a project he started where he bought a building and has built an innovation hub that is centered in the heart of Atlanta. As he puts it, by creating an ecosystem for startups and entrepreneurs, he's engineering serendipity. And helping to make sure that Atlanta will reach its full potential as an entrepreneurial ecosystem. Out of the Atlanta Tech Village has come many successful companies, including Calendly, where David sits on the board and is an early investor. David breaks down how the Atlanta Tech Village operates, the VC fund he's investing out of, he tells us a lot about that, why companies should heavily consider starting in Atlanta, it makes a very compelling pitch, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Fire on Marketing. FireOn Marketing is a full-service marketing firm providing high-quality, cost-effective solutions. They support companies in developing websites, creating content, email marketing, optimizing SEO, and managing ad campaigns on social media, Google, and beyond. What's unique about their approach is that they connect all of the marketing activities together to create a unified conversion loop and generate higher yield for clients. If you're interested in learning more, visit fireonmarketing.com. Welcome, David. Thanks for being here. Mark, thanks for having me. Great. Excited to have you. Um, So we're going to start off, I'll just do a brief intro on your background. I find that that saves a little time and forces us to talk about the more interesting stuff or ideas, concepts, and challenges. All right, so uh, David's got an incredible background. I like to tell people stories because I think they're often more impressive than they'll let on. Uh, He is the founder of the Atlanta Tech Village, which is a skyscraper in Atlanta. It's the fourth largest entrepreneurial space in America. Huge community and a major cornerstone of the Atlanta startup scene. He is an investor in a number of startups, including Calendly, which I believe is a unicorn now, and you're on the board of that. Uh, Dragon Army, Sales Loft, and many others. And before he took on uh, all of this broader Atlanta mission, which we're going to talk about, he built and sold Pardot to Salesforce. And probably some of you listening use that software because it's still under its existing brand, original brand, for $95 million. Had a great exit. Um, so he's a successful entrepreneur, has gone A to Z. And before Pardo, he started Hannon Hill out of his dorm room at Duke. And that's when we met. So I, I saw him actively making the magic happen. Uh, the company is still alive and kicking 20 years later. and I'm ex- excited to get an update on that. This is a, his official Clubhouse debut. So please follow him so you can keep uh, up to speed on all the things he's doing and as he gets more active on the platform. You can also follow him on Twitter at David Cummings. What did I miss, David? Anything? Or is that the... Did I do you justice?
0: No, that's great. Yeah, lots okay. of... Lots of exploratory ventures over the years. Some work, some didn't. Yeah, and we're just going to
1: focus on the success. We're just going to make you look good. Well, that's, that's the, uh, the venture world in
0: a nutshell. A lot of um, when the startup works, it gets all the credit. And then when it doesn't work, nobody remembers it. So good to talk about the wins.
1: Yep. I agree. And the, the short-term memory works in your favor as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, let's jump into the Atlantic Tech Village because I think it's a big name. And I think it'll give folks listening who don't know you some context on the things you've been up to. So let's work backward. Uh, Can you just start by giving, giving us an overview of the Atlanta Tech Village so people can get a sense of that?
0: Sure. So the idea for the Atlanta Tech Village was to establish a center of gravity in the Atlanta startup ecosystem. When I bought the building back in 2012, Atlanta at the time had a few startup successes, but it wasn't known as a startup hub and it didn't have any center of gravity from a community point of view. And so the big idea was how can we get thousands of entrepreneurs under the same roof? How can we create community? How can we engineer serendipity with the ultimate goal of being a greater chance of success? By being in this community, by being in this building, by being around each other, the chance of you succeeding as an entrepreneur goes up. And the past nine years has proved that
1: thesis to be correct. Do you have a way you measure that? How do you know that someone is materially more likely to be successful if they domicile within the walls of the Atlanta Tech Village?
0: We do. And we do it by looking at the success rates, the rates of raising money. We look at it at the exit rates. We look at it at the number of jobs created. And so the the startups that have been in the Tech Village and have graduated from the Tech Village have raised $2 billion of venture capital. In the past nine years, and they've created over 7,000 direct jobs and then a much larger number of indirect jobs. So tracking capital raised and job creation, comparing that to the overall average for startups,
1: the ones in the tech village have been much more successful on average. That's an awesome stat. Congratulations on the work there. When you talk about setting these companies up to be successful, outside of getting them in the same space. What have you learned? What are the tricks that other people running office spaces, coworking, should be doing to really invigorate and stimulate innovation? For us,
0: we really boiled it down to engineering serendipity. It sounds silly, but this idea of how can we bring people together? What I found is entrepreneurs are typically good at one thing. I might be good at fundraising. You might be good at product development. Another one might be good at the ideation side of things but when you bring a bunch of entrepreneurs together entrepreneurs by their very nature are glass half full type people they're optimistic they want to change the world and so getting a thousand of them under the same roof and then working to create these natural collisions all kinds of great stuff happens that you could never plan for and so to make these things happen it's everything from you know friday chowdowns just group lunches to Special interest groups, you know, iOS developers, as different from crypto developers, as different from marketing groups and sales groups and product development groups. And then really having all kinds of speakers and mentors and advisors. So, really, just everything, it, you know, the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to raise a startup. And so, it's proved to
1: be more successful than we could have even ever imagined. How do you engineer that serendipity just on an operational level? Is it is it as simple as hosting events and creating email lists or is there some, you know, I'm always looking for creative ways to create the glue between all the different people I know? And it seems like it's always just comes down to elbow grease and breath. it's it's a and just a basic operational thing. Is there any wizardry you found outside of the basics? There is a lot of elbow
0: grease. So, having great people, of course, on the staff side, people that are making the intros and setting up the meetings and figuring out different personality types and building relationships with the entrepreneurs so that the entrepreneur will share the truth. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs like to paint a rosy picture, they like to paint that things are going well, but we all know behind the scenes that entrepreneurs are, you know, they go through a lot of stress. There's a lot of high highs and low lows. And so, building the relationships to get the real meat of the conversation, what's going on, what are the real challenges, and then using that to be able to connect them and make the introductions. And then on the meat and potatoes side, it's, it's bringing entrepreneurs together through some theme. So we have what we call the six-figure club. And so the six-figure six Figure club is entrepreneurs in the building that have raised six figures of angel investment. Right, So you've raised a couple hundred grand, you've raised a seed round, you're building product. And so we just bucket them all together in that six-figure club. And then we have a seven-figure club, so entrepreneurs that have raised over a million dollars. And so looking for some of these different ways to categorize the entrepreneurs in a very broad, general manner, and then bringing them together over Zoom calls, in-person meetings, that kind of stuff. So a little bit of infrastructure... And a lot of relationship building and just working hard to pay it forward, trying to be helpful.
1: I love that. Now, it's a for profit business, right?
0: It is. It's a for profit business. You know, we charge roughly $350 per person per month. You could think of it as a WeWork type space, mm-hmm. higher end in terms of finishes and design and layout. But then it's, curated for just software companies. So imagine walking into a WeWork with 103,000 square feet across six floors and it's exclusively software companies. And so we have just the whole business is curated around that specific audience.
1: That's fantastic. Now how did you said you bought the building? How did you finance that? Was did, did you find some real estate partners to go in on this with or how did you think about setting this up cuz it's not your background, right? I know the the community is, but you're a startup guy by training. So, how did you decide to make the leap to real estate?
0: You know, back in the day, it seemed a lot crazier than it seems now. Back in the day, you know, WeWork wasn't a thing, co working wasn't a hot area, the future of work wasn't a daily discussion. And so, the big impetus for it back in 2012 was really the desire to build community in Atlanta, you know, a city that's, you know, the ninth largest city in the country. Has lots of sprawl, has lots of suburbs, and so creating a center of gravity had to have some scale to it, had to have some mass to it. Mm-hmm. And then from the real estate side, you know, again, pre co working, it was just a huge hassle to bounce between subleases or try to try to find a good deal. You know, the, the traditional commercial real estate world is not geared towards companies that don't have operating history, companies that don't have strong balance sheets. You know, it's just. Normal commercial real estate is the anti startup um, in terms of what they look for. So at the time, it was very novel. And to answer your question directly, after selling Pardot, you know, I just had some cash in my checking account, and I just wrote a check for one hundred three thousand
1: square foot building. I just made it happen. That's awesome. I love that you could do that. That's baller. Um, how is uh, how's the business doing with COVID? How, how have things evolved for you? I mean, there's probably a lot of other entrepreneurs. I know there's dozens in New York that are navigating this crisis uh, who are on the real estate side of the world and are trying to stay alive. Did yeah, you, do you have thing, any strategies that people could employ to kind of keep above water until things turn back on?
0: On the pure real estate side, you know, it's been challenged. The community side has, has held up through Zoom and a lot of Phone calls and emails and group lists and trying to to do it that way, but it obviously it's nothing the same as in person. But it's held up okay, you know, pretty good in light of everything. As a real estate business, you know, knock on wood, because we didn't have any debt, because there's no mortgage on the building, it Mm. hasn't been that big of an issue. Obviously, revenue is way down, net operating income is way down, but. You know, there is never a a mortgage payment looming on the horizon. So, you know, at the end of the day, everything's going to be fine. And and
1: we're optimistic that we're going to come back strong. Yeah, you can weather the storm. Are you seeing any signs of people coming back online now that the vaccines are somewhat penetrated in the market?
0: A little bit. We're seeing more so signs of people just pulling their hair out and having to get out of their house, having to have a change of scenery, having to have some structure. And so... You know, we've rented out several offices just in the past 30 days, several new members in the past 30 days. So it's, I think people hunkered down for, you know, a good, you know, 10, 11 months. And once the vaccines were starting to happen and once the you know, light was at the end of the tunnel, we've seen a nice uptick in activity, uh, really just in the past
1: 30 days. When you look into your crystal ball, when do you see office, you know, return to work? happening in, in the new version of what it's going to be, but in fairly full force. Is it six months out, three months out? What's your, what's your think, internal I think the timing magic, for this? The magic
0: timing is Labor Day. Hmm. So plenty of time for the vaccines to roll out, plenty of time for people that have already scheduled a bunch of summer activities for the families, for the kids, plenty of time for the office providers to do some restructuring of space, making it more collaboration hubs and less private workspaces. And then, you know, once school's back in session, you know, right after labor, labor Day, I think it's, you know, back to the new normal, whatever that is. And I think the new normal for most companies, at least the ones that I'm involved in, the new normal is really work anywhere you want, whenever you want. So it's a digital-first remote-type setup with collaboration hubs in different cities. right? So it might be a 20-person office in Atlanta that you can go in and work out of as much as you want, but you're not going to have an assigned desk. It's not the office that the company works out of. It's a collaboration hub in Atlanta. And now this is obviously skewing more towards the tech startups and more towards the high-growth venture-backed companies. It's a different world for the old-school businesses. but. I think collaboration hubs and, and work flexibility is, is the new norm for the startup world, especially companies that are competing for great talent.
1: We're trying to figure this out at Interplay. We're talking about what we're going to do for our office. The current concept that we're floating is a remote-first construct where we're, we're thinking about churning. And I don't think this is totally novel, but want to bounce it off, you can get some thoughts, churning kind of the structure of, hey, you're allowed to work from home two days a month or once a week or whatever people used to do on its head, and it'll be remote first, but you have to be in the office five days a month, 10 days a month, some number to create some sort of serendipity to steal your word, right? Otherwise, I think there will be people who are never there at all, right? So we're thinking about getting a space um, that's maybe, to your point, like a hoteling operation no assigned seating smaller footprint maybe there is 6 desks for every 10 people but um, this is kind of what we're floating but the idea is everyone has to be present sometime unless they're working out of the state out of the country and they're taking a month remote which is awesome what are your thoughts on that as a method and if that is what's going to happen going forward how do you have to how do you, how do you and you know co-working and all the other folks that are providing really viable office-based solutions for the more innovative folks out there who are having dynamic company structures and a lot of change? How does the model have to evolve to accommodate that?
0: A few thoughts there. One is for our team at the Tech Village. So obviously, we have the physical building, we have all the infrastructure. We're taking the approach of one day a week in the office. So call it Mondays. And then every other day of the week, whatever is best suited to your style of work. So some people want to Mm. come in. Some people want to work from home. Some people want to work from the lake house or whatever it might be. So for businesses like the Tech Village as a business, we're going the one day a week, team in the office, team meetings, team lunch, and then four days a week, flexibility. Other startups like Calendly, which was in the Tech Village for five years... Calendly has taken the approach of being completely remote first. We're calling it digital first, but same thing. And so, with time, they haven't been done yet, but with time, there'll be collaboration hubs in different cities. And, you know, the majority of the employees are in Atlanta right now, but over time, it'll just depend on wherever the best talent is. And so, that's our approach.
1: Very interesting. Um, What are the ancillary benefits for someone like you in owning a building and having kind of a a hub how does that uh, well, change your game as david not as uh, atlanta tech ventures
0: i think it's a lot of fun right you know we did uh, obviously the build out so we spent 16 million dollars on the build out of the building eight years ago so it's fun to work with architects and see a concept and an idea come to life you know the bits and bytes world is tons of fun, but the atoms world is is quite fun as well. So for me, scratching different creative itches, it's been great. And then as a, a building, you know, there's lots of things that I've learned on the investment side. So you know, I invest into a startup, and you know, there's no liquidity, there's no line of credit, there's no collateral that I'm able to borrow against. If I wanted, you know, with the building, it's easy; it's real estate, and you can go get a line of credit or go get a mortgage on it. And so there's You know, different liquidity trade offs. And then in the commercial real estate world, there's a number of other factors that it was fun to learn about. Like there's depreciation expense, which can actually save you a lot of money on taxes in the short term. In the long term, you still pay the same amount of tax, but in the short term, you're depreciating a building that you're still getting full use of and it's resulting in paying less taxes in the short term. Again, when you sell the building, you have to, you know, true it all up. So it's just been fun to learn about a whole different segment of the economy.
1: Okay. What about the connective tissue? I mean, you you mentioned uh, Calendly was in the village. Um, I know you were on the board of the company. What's the positive circumstance or dynamics that are created when you have a lot of entrepreneurs working in a space that you operate? I'm, I'm assuming it creates a lot of opportunities.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Calendly would not have happened as an opportunity for me to be the you know, the sole angel investor in the business if it wasn't for the tech village. So, from the investment front, it's great to meet with entrepreneurs. There's no obligation of investing, there's no equity component to being in the tech village. But as an entrepreneur trying to help other entrepreneurs, as you can imagine, there's lots of opportunities that arise out of it. So, just paying it forward and helping to try to grow the community. Has resulted in a number of, of great opportunities, obviously, with Calendly being the most famous of them.
1: You just referenced something that um, came up in my conversation with David Cohen at Techstars last week. right? This idea of, you know, he, he used different language, you use slightly different now, but the phrase we've always tossed around is the more you give, the more you get. And I don't think we created anything about that. That seems to be deeply ingrained startup ethos, right? Particularly in the more nascent markets. I think for, uh, for sure, because they're, it's, it's more of a team sport as everyone's trying to make something work. Is that, how is that energy, is that, is that entwined, intertwined in the Atlanta community at this point? Do the people in the tech village get that? Was there, an edu- was there a learning curve to kind of get people up on that help mentality, help first? Or did people show up in day one that had been permeated through the broader ecosystem before you had the center of gravity there? In some way or another,
0: I think that the Tech Village really embodied it. You know, from day one, we had our core values of be nice, dream big, pay it forward, and then work hard, play hard. Any Blue Devils in the audience will know where the, the last one came from. And so, making that the the you know the core values from day one. And so, again, on the culture fit side, you know, we have a, a culture screening team for entrepreneurs to get into the Tech Village. So we were. Defining our standards, and then we were attracting people that believed in those standards. And so the pay it forward element has been a, a huge component of it. And as an example on that side, you know, a lot of it in the startup world, as we know, you know, most startups fail. 99% of startups never achieve $1 million of revenue in a calendar year, ever. Wow. So, th- I didn't so know the stat. odds are so stacked against you what we've found is that by building these relationships and by paying it forward and by attracting people who believe in these same core values we've had what we call a lot of recycling talent right so entrepreneurs are working on something again most of the time it doesn't work out the entrepreneurs down the hall are working on something different it does work out they've built rapport they've built relationships and so when the entrepreneurs that you know it isn't working out they say okay I'm hanging up my cleats. I'm calling it a day, but my buddy down the hall, she's got this thing that's going gangbusters. We've got a great relationship. We've got complementary skill sets. We're going to recycle talent and go join them. And so what it's done is it's made it so that the winners win even bigger and the ones that weren't going to win, you know, they have more opportunities around them. And so that whole pay it forward, plus the recycling of talent has proved to be a, a great formula that I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate without having the opportunity to see it play out over the course of eight or nine years.
1: I'm sure you didn't foresee all of this stuff when you, um, when you turn the lights on at the village. But when, when, I, uh, when, I, when I look at this maneuver of setting up the village, uh, it feels like uh, it's created a hell of an opportunity for folks who are trying to figure out their way in entrepreneurship or trying to figure out how to do this, to get mentorship. It seems like a huge opportunity. What is the admission process like for you guys? Because when I think of typical coworking spaces, it's just you know an order and a queue you, you put your, you took a number thirty five and when there's a thirty fifth office available, you're in. It sounds like you guys are actually filtering and picking picking who's part of this uh, organization. Is that the case? And if so, how hard is it to get in the village? That is the case. So we have our our culture check team.
0: And again, we want to be inclusive. We want to be a place that anybody can participate, but we want people that believe in our values. And again, be nice, dream big, pay it forward, work hard, play hard. And so we're really uh, assessing people that believe in those values and that will be a culture ad. They'll they'll be additive to our culture. And as you can imagine, over the years, we've had some some bad apples make it through and and it quickly becomes apparent. You know, The most common example is somebody that is on their best behavior during the, the culture check interviews. And then as soon as they're in the village, all they want to do is sell to the other startups that are in the building. And so they're really motivated by just trying to find a new customer and they're not motivated by paying it forward and helping increase everybody's chance of startup success so to directly answer your question we have a series of interview questions and it's all around the core values
1: do you kick those bad actors out
0: we do and there's there's been some awkward conversations and some some challenges that have come from it but you know at the end of the day the culture and the results speak for themselves having like-minded people around each other that want to increase everybody's chance of success has been a winning formula.
1: I've been emailing you, I'm to change the subject here for a second, at your Atlanta Ventures email address. hmm And I was confused for a couple minutes because when I was preparing for this, I was on your LinkedIn, I didn't see it anywhere, Atlanta Ventures. But I know you, I knew you had a website, so I went and looked at it. And it looks like it's a, a holding company of sorts. that kind of weaves a lot of the things you're doing together. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how you think about Atlanta Ventures, how it fits into your broader playbook here? So Atlanta Ventures is the holding company that
0: owns the Atlanta Tech Village real estate. The Atlanta Tech Village real estate separate from the Atlanta Tech Village operating company that operates the building. Mm-hmm. And then Atlanta Ventures is the holding company for the different investments into companies like Calendly, companies like Sales Loft, which is another unicorn companies like Terminus, which announced a, a $90 million round just last month. And so Atlanta Ventures is the overarching umbrella of all things startup, whether it's real estate or operating companies or investments or SPVs or anything related to the startup world.
1: And that's, it's your vehicle. It's a one-man team or do you have an operating staff or how does it work? Yeah, we have a great team. We have a,
0: a staff for the Tech Village. We have a staff for Atlanta Ventures. And so... And then we also have the Startup Studio. And so the idea behind the, the Startup Studio is really to create new ideas from scratch, recruit entrepreneurs, recruit other investors. And so we've started a number of companies over the year and have had a, a good track record there as well. So not, not too different than uh, the Mark Peter Davis
1: world of startup life. That's great. Yeah, you know, There's a lot of similarities. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Foundry? Is there a particular focus on what you guys build and... Are you financing them or you bring in outside investors? What, what's, the, um, what's the construct there? You don't talk a lot about that.
0: So the, the startup studio, the idea is that we create two new companies per year from scratch. Cool. And so it can be anything. Obviously, technology is our area of focus. One of the ones that's making really good progress is called Z. So if you go to greenz.com and what we've done is we've taken a lot of the technology that's been developed over the years for self-driving cars and we've applied them to commercial lawn mowers. And so if you think mm. about all the grass that gets mowed, you know the grass keeps growing, it's just a massive market that frankly was underserved, right? Robotics has been around forever, but robotics for outdoor you know, maintenance of grass has not been applied. And so we've got an amazing team. We've got an amazing entrepreneur. We've got customers that love it. And you can go to greenzy.com. You can go on YouTube and type in Greenzy and see the lawnmowers in action. But it's an example of something that we came up with as an idea. You know, being in Atlanta, we have lots of grass. We have lots of athletic fields, lots of golf courses. And so it's one of those things. Why, why don't we see autonomous mowers? Why aren't they out in the wild? And so that was an example of a a startup studio company that we came up with the idea and worked to build a great team and raise money from investors, both internally and externally. And we're off to the races with some some great paying customers.
1: Is that a royal we, where it's you're the person coming up with the ideas and putting the pieces together? Or are there partners in the studio side? No, no. We're driving that as well. Yeah, we
0: have partners and we have investors as well.
1: Okay, so you've raised outside capital for the studio specifically.
0: We do it just on a a per startup basis.
1: Okay, so model is, have idea, put it together with you and your partners, put it together, Mm -hmm. and then you'll go out and help the entrepreneur raise money. That's right. Great. And the ideas, are they mainly folks coming to you with the concepts, or you guys have a playbook and you're like, all right, here's all the ideas we're excited about. Let's go find people to step in and do these
0: we come up with the ideas internally. So we got a, a big Google sheet of a hundred ideas and mm-hmm. then we work really hard to find and pair the product idea with the founder personality. So this, fro- this product mm. personality fit as a precursor to obviously the goal being
1: product market fit. And so that's worked really well for us over the years. And I, I assume the companies all, are all in Atlanta and stay around. That's right. After you launch them? That's right. That's great. So on that Atlanta theme, uh, you, you're playing so many roles in that geography. Uh, it's clear you're, you're, you're trying to construct an ecosystem, it seems like to me. Is there some sort of overarching mission that you're chasing as you do these piecemeal pieces of the strategy? I mean, it's obviously named Atlanta Ventures. Um, is there a master plan that you're building into or is it opportunistic? How are you thinking about the overarching vision here?
0: Sure. So it's sort of like the old uh, Rodney Dangerfield where we can't get no respect. From an Atlanta point of view, we've got all these great things. We've got amazing schools like Georgia Tech, which is one of the finest engineering schools in the country. We have a number of success stories you know, on the generic entrepreneurial side and then specifically on the tech side. And so our goal really from a community point of view is to put Atlanta on the map, to be a a top 10 Mm. tech startup community in the country. I mentioned earlier in the conversation that atlanta from a a metro region is the ninth largest population wise in the country and on different stats whether it's venture capital raised or you know dollar amount of exits we're typically in the 12 to 14 range in the country and so our goal from a community point of view is for atlanta to per capita punch at or above its weight class. So top 10 in the country for amount of venture capital, top 10 in the country for annual volume dollar of
1: exits, things like that. I would have assumed you guys were in the top 10. The, the 12th ranking, does that include San Francisco and the, and the Valley as separate entities, separate geographies? It does, yeah. San Jose is separate from San yeah. Francisco. Okay, so that gets you up to 11th. Who else, is, who else is punching above you guys? Obviously, LA, New York, Boston. That's right. But like Seattle, Chicago, like, Austin. You know, Atlanta has yeah.
0: way more people than Seattle does, but Seattle punches above their weight class for obvious reasons. Right.
1: What are the anchor tenants? One of the things that New York didn't have 15 years ago that it has now are a number of these unicorns that are spitting out talent, more or less. Mm-hmm. Right. They're training people up. People make money on their stock options. They go out and they start stuff. And then it's it's a bigger narrative around recycling talent, maybe from the top, mm-hmm. right? Where mid-level folks or senior folks become founders and then they train up the next generation. Who's doing that now? Obviously, Calendly, I know that you're involved with them. Are there a couple of other anchor tenants that are kind of giving birth to the next generation of Atlanta?
0: So Atlanta is actually a fintech powerhouse. So back in the 70s, when the Federal Reserve, basically behind the scenes for the banks, decided that they were going to, create a system to do digital transfers of money. It was actually invented at the Federal Reserve in Atlanta. So now we know it as ACH, automated clearinghouse transfer. So ACH was actually invented in Atlanta by the Fed in Atlanta. And so today, 70% of all credit card transactions across the United States flow through Atlanta. Wow so the behind the scenes credit card processor so you think of like stripe stripe is really a more of a mid-level and a front-end processor that then uses the back end rails of other companies and those other companies are based in atlanta so on the fintech Mm -hmm. side atlanta has a long history our most prominent example that doesn't get enough credit is a company called intercontinental exchange it's a 60 billion dollar publicly traded fintech company started in atlanta 20 years ago and it's actually the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. So, huh. a local entrepreneur in Atlanta started a fintech company and then bought the New York Stock Exchange several years ago. So, the NYSE is actually owned in Atlanta. But that's amazing. A lot of people don't realize that.
1: So, what are the other industries that um, Atlanta is leveraging to kind of build off for this, this tech hub?
0: Another area that Atlanta is really strong is logistics. Right. So if you think of Delta Airlines, Delta is one of the largest airline companies in the world, headquartered in Atlanta. If you think of UPS, UPS, along with FedEx, you know, UPS is one of the largest shipping companies in the world. UPS is headquartered right here in Atlanta. So everything logistics wise, Atlanta is really strong. You know, Atlanta was formed because it was the intersection of the two main railroads, the railroads that went across the country east to west and then the railroads that went across the country north to south, they intersected in Atlanta. And that's the only reason why Atlanta exists is because of the railroad intersection. But then because of that, you know, when the interstates were built in the 50s, you know, three interstates go through Atlanta. And so logistics, both on the rail and on you know, the trucks in the interstates, and then of course in the air as well, it all comes through Atlanta. So logistics is a super, super important part of the economy. And then on the on the tech startup side, closer to your question, yeah. You know, sales and marketing, near and dear to my heart. Obviously, you know, Pardot's marketing and automation software for B2B. Sales Loft is another company that we started that's a unicorn doing sales engagement software. MailChimp founded in Atlanta, MailChimp does over a billion dollars a year of recurring revenue, all bootstrapped. And it was founded Phenomenal. by two Georgia Tech guys. And then a number of other um, you know, email marketing, marketing automation, sales tech, RevTech is based in Atlanta. So sales and marketing technology has been one of our strengths here for the past 10 years.
1: So this is kind of a common thread, right? We had David Cohen on from Techstars and Mark Suster from um, Upfront and they were each, more or less, part of their motivating strategy was to develop their local community, right? Techstars, they wanted to build out Boulder. Mark is long LA, that's his, his phrase for it. Um, and everyone's shilling to kind of build their ecosystem, which I think is fantastic. It creates a healthy competitive dynamic, and I think it helps the whole country and the whole world. What's the pitch for folks who are debating where to go for why they should move to Atlanta for would-be entrepreneurs, potential talent that would be joining a company, when they're evaluating their options, why should Atlanta be their choice?
0: So Atlanta is the capital of the Southeast. The Southeast of the United States is the fastest-growing population center of the entire country by far. Atlanta has one of the best cost of livings for a large metro region, top 10 population-wise in the country. And then Atlanta has the, one of the finest engineering schools in the country that produces engineering graduates at scale, right? So Georgia Tech is top 10 academically in every single degree, every single major, every single field of study. And Georgia Tech graduates more engineers per year than MIT, Carnegie Mellon, and Stanford combined, And Georgia Tech graduates the most African-American engineers of any school in the country. Georgia State University, which is based in downtown Atlanta, graduates more African-American college graduates than any school in the country. So from a community point of view, we have the fastest growing population center in the entire country. We have a cost of living for being in a large city that's very reasonable. And we have the best college graduate pipeline of any region
1: in the country. That's pretty compelling. What are the reasons not to go there? Summers are hot. You know, it is the
0: South, a lot of humidity. Mm -hmm. And then from a a community point of view, it's just, it's a different feel. It's people are a little happier on average. There's more of a can-do attitude. People smile more often. You know, it just doesn't have the, the same hustle and bustle of a New York.
1: That sounds terrible. Happiness?
0: We're not into that. People that smile, um, people that want to see you, people that don't lower yeah. their eyes when you walk by them.
1: What's the, uh, how do you think the flavor of the startup community there is going to be different? Because I think each region's got a different energy. Is it, is it simply the Southern charm or is there some other dimension that you think is going to develop as Atlanta matures as a tech market? i do think the you know
0: southern charm i do think the you know people come to atlanta for a great combination of big city amenities but a little better quality of life so there's some trade-off there right if you're in finance and you want to be king of the world you go to new york right if you're if you want to be a movie star you go to la what do you come to atlanta for right there's really no defining industry in atlanta You come to Atlanta because you want a great quality of life, because you want other people that are balancing ambition and time with their family. You know, it's interesting. It doesn't have a a clear answer there.
1: What do you think it needs at this point? You know, there's a lot of people listening. Maybe a lot of the Atlanta folks will listen to this. You've built pieces of this ecosystem on your own, that's not going to scale. What is the city missing? What do you need someone to pick up and do?
0: 40 years ago, there was an entrepreneur who was jokingly called the mouth of the South, and his name is Ted Turner. And so Ted Turner created CNN and TBS and TNT movies. And, you know, Ted Turner was the Elon Musk of his day in the media industry, literally took the, you know, the cable satellites and broadcast 24-7 news into our homes with CNN. So 40 years ago, we had the Elon Musk equivalent as our entrepreneur helping put Atlanta on the map. The thing that we're missing now is that next generation, whatever industry it might be, tech hopefully, startups hopefully, but we don't have that Elon Musk equivalent, that Jeff Bezos equivalent. And so that's... An area of opportunity for Atlanta.
1: Okay, so the answer is we need someone to come in and be a big badass and yeah, make the magic and happen. Build a hundred. There's not a particular. There's no answer. There's other not a particular than, industry or e- the hole in the ecosystem. So you've got the base layer of everything going on. Yeah, we we At need that point, point, we need standout
0: more. anchor technology company. Whether it's a Tesla or a Microsoft or a Amazon or Google, we don't mm-hmm. have that. Trillion dollar company, let alone that hundred billion dollar company. We have some great multi billion dollar companies, like the one I mentioned before that owns the New York Stock Exchange. But you need that combination of mega success and that entrepreneurial personality that likes to grab the mic and make outlandish statements to go with it.
1: Right now, we've we've seen the Miami folks uh, do a lot of hand waving recently, which I think is great. Where the the political environment is really supporting the growth of the tech ecosystem. Do you have that alignment in Atlanta? Are the government officials as excited about this as you are? We do. The government officials
0: here are super pro-business, right? So Atlanta is always ranked as one of the top states for expanding your business or for relocating your headquarters. So we have a very pro-business climate. Miami is obviously a little more flashy than Atlanta. So the Miami politicians mm-hmm. are more engaging on social media and on national news, you know, from a Georgia and from an Atlanta point of view, it's not the, the same type of MO. So Atlanta and Georgia are very pro-business, but the flashiness is
1: not here. I understand. Okay. I'm going to throw this back to the old days now. You and I met in college. We did. Long time ago. A long time ago, 20 years. 20 years. Ta- that happened. Um, I believe at the time, we were the only two really entrepreneurly focused folks on campus at Duke. That's right. I think that's a safe comment.
0: I think that's really safe. I think there's a couple more, but maybe 10 at
1: most, literally. And I, I think of the 10, you were the good entrepreneur and I was one of the many crappy entrepreneurs. Oh, uh, I, th- I think you, know, you did all right. A, I think you're doing quite maybe fine. Maybe a late bloomer. You, you were blooming in college. Um, when you were starting your first company in college, I remember going to visit your office and I said in the intro that you built it in your dorm room, but I think that's only half true. Mm-hmm. You had a space at downtown Durham. That's right. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of your journey with Hannon Hill and Pardot? Like how did the first 10, 15 years go of this? But most importantly for the folks listening, what did you learn for people who are student entrepreneurs right now? What did you take away? Cause you navigated it so well relative to most. I had five failed companies in college, and you came out with a company that's still uh, scaling. How big is and Hill now, 20 years later?
0: We now have over 250 colleges and universities as customers today. So still, you know, it's one of those businesses where you, know, you, you see a problem for and Hill. So the, the, the business that Mark's referring to is a business that does content management software for universities. So, this idea of managing your website across dozens, if not hundreds, of departments, thousands, if not tens of thousands of web pages, all different types of templates and workflows and approval processes. And so it's one of these things that 20 years ago, when, when I started the company, it's like, oh yeah, of course this is a problem. Of course, universities coordinating their content across all the different schools and campuses and departments is a is a huge pain. And so it's one of those ones where just slow and steady wins the race. We just kept working hard at delighting the customers and iterating on the product and we're still growing nicely to this day, you know, twenty years ago or twenty years later. And so but but back to your previous comment, I think from a, a college campus environment. You know we were there during the dot-com heyday right we were we you couldn't pick up any newspaper without reading about dot-com this dot-com that you know i remember my year at duke it was the first time ever that the economics major was the most popular major historically duke's been Mm. a place of you know pre-med people that would be biology majors or pre-law people that would be public policy majors and so my year was the first year that econ was the most popular major because people wanted to go to Wall Street. People wanted to go to you know, high finance. And so, of course, that's, that changed quickly with 9-11 and the recession and everything else. But you would have thought with the dot-com day and everything else, the heyday, that it would have been more entrepreneurial, but it was still very quiet back
1: then. What did you take away through that experience? You know, specifically advice for first-time founders, young founders, founders in college. What's different and a unique opportunity or way to do business in that bubble that they should make sure to exploit?
0: Well, my recommendation is exactly what you did, right? You said you had five failures in college. The best thing that an entrepreneur can do is get out there and start doing, I think a lot of would-be entrepreneurs spend too much time trying to find the perfect idea, they want to find the perfect timing in the market, they want to you know do all these things that you just you just don't know until you're out there competing and trying to win business and trying to land customers and trying to delight the customers. So my main piece of advice, my number one piece of advice for entrepreneurs is to just start something. And once you've started something, then so many other ideas will emerge, so many other gaps in the market will emerge. But if you sit on your ivory tower and just try to guess what the market wants, you're never going to, rarely going to figure it out on the first go around. So I would recommend people do the same thing you and I did, which is just start something, even if it isn't the most glamorous, even if it isn't the greatest idea ever, and just start learning
1: and iterating from it. Taking that question and broadening it. So that, that ended up being targeted at first-time entrepreneurs and people kind of navigating this space for the first time. What's the advice? You're on a bunch of boards. You're a prolific investor. What's the advice you find yourself giving to the entrepreneurs you've invested in most often? What's the thing where you're like, you know, I'm a little bit of a broken record because I've said this 15 times this year. But advice that can be helpful to people who are already in the game. What do you want them to know? The only thing that matters
0: is that the customers are happy. Hmm. The only thing that matters. So entrepreneurs love, love, love to get bogged down by what the competitors are doing. Oh, competitor A just raised all this money. Competitor B just launched this new feature. Competitor C just opened an office in Europe. Entrepreneurs love to pay attention to the competitors. And so my nagging, boring, repetitive thing is... The only thing that matters is delighting the customer. And so everything else is noise. So that's my go-to. It's all about the customers. Ignore the competitors. Ignore everything else. Just delight the customers and everything
1: else is noise. I think that's great advice. I feel like a lot of people who are worried about the press releases from the competitors, forget how large all of these markets are. Exactly. There is so much money to be made if you're doing a good job.
0: I agree. And the the best form of marketing is a happy customer. A happy customer tells, you know, word of mouth marketing. A happy customer puts, you know, G2 crowd reviews out there. A happy customer, you know, defends you on Twitter when something goes wrong because things always go wrong. You know, it's just part of life. You know, there's nothing more valuable than a, a raving fan that will go be that testimonial, that lighthouse account that will just, tell everybody how great your product or service is.
1: My friend, you've come a long way in the last 20 years. I think you've had big impact. You've had some business success. But most, more importantly, you've had a lot of impact, I'm sure, in a lot of lives in the Atlanta community, um, and probably beyond. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? Where does all this go? I think we've got a good thing going here. The
0: next 10 years, I'd love to see it continue to develop more startups, more venture capital, more new ideas created in the studio. And so I know it's a, a simplistic answer, but it's been working so well for so long that I love to just keep the momentum going and ever bigger, ever grander, you know, scales of success.
1: I think that's not an uncommon response for kind of the, what I would call the 40-year-old mindset, which I'm in, is you've made your bed usually by 40 mm-hmm. and you're trying to maximize but you've got a bigger story here. Have you thought about, you know, government aspirations? Have you thought about mayor or governor? Does that fit the narrative for you at all, long term? No, no interest. My style is, is much too
0: introverted. I love just sitting with my ideas and scheming up of what the world should look like. The idea of going out there and glad handing and lots of pressing the flesh and playing those different games has no interest to me.
1: Well, you and I are wired the same. Hey, David, thank you for making time today. This was fantastic. Hopefully a lot of people benefit from the conversation. I'm hopeful that people in other cities will consider Atlanta and maybe learn some of the best practices that you've developed for the city and build those in their local communities. Nothing would be better than a lot of great startup ecosystems creating jobs. Thank you for the time. Mark, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Big thanks to David for joining me on the podcast today. As you can tell, Atlanta's innovation future is bright. I'm excited to loop back with David in a few years to hear how things have gone. But I have no doubt he will continue to crush it and have a big impact, hopefully bringing Atlanta into the top 10 of the venture ecosystems in the US. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.